On this week's TribCast, we'll talk about a state lawmaker suggesting his election opponents are running because they're Asian, and the latest on presidential politics in Texas. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. Raise Your Hand Texas, which is strengthening public education for the future, because the future of Texas is in our public schools. More at RaiseYourHandTexas.org. And want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at StandingWithTexas.com. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, December 3rd with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. Hello. Courts reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. Hi, Emma. And politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hello. Hey, Alex. Uh, as always, we will take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do that using the hashtag Tribcast. Um, okay, Matthew, let's start with you and a state representative, Rick Miller, who had a serious foot and mouth interview with a reporter, which is every reporter's dream and every elected official's worst nightmare. Uh, what did he say exactly? Well, yes. So actually, Ri- I'd like you to do a dramatic reading. <laughs> okay. Well, this is, I'll be playing the part of Rick Miller, uh, <laughs> a longtime state rep, um, in Fort Bend County. Uh, he is in a competitive, uh, house seat, um, comp- competitive primary or was and also um, one that's expected to be kind of a swing seat um, in the general election he was giving an interview with uh, Andrea Zelinsky from the Houston Chronicle and speaking about um, one of his uh, two primary opponents uh, JC Jatan uh, he said quote he's a Korean he has decided because because he is an Asian and that my district might need an Asian to win and that's kind of racist in my mind Because anyway, that's not necessary, at least not yet. He then turned to his other opponent, um, uh, Leonard Chan, to say, Chan jumped in probably for the same reason. I don't know. I never met the guy. I have no idea who he is. He has not been around Republican channels at all, but he's an Asian. Well, (laughs) what do you make of, uh, first of all, I mean, what do you make of these comments to begin with? Sure. Well, okay. So first of all, kind of, you know, he seems to be saying in kind of a bizarre manner that it's racist to run, to be Asian and be seeking public office in the house, which... If you're um, seeking Asian voters or something. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And he, you know, a little bit of backstory here. Uh, Fort Bend County is a a very diverse, growing county. Um, You know, I I believe uh, the the local school district there, over over 170, 180 languages spoken among the students in that school. Um, It has recently flipped blue and is, um, you know, kind of the, the ultimate, like, suburban county in Texas that is going through this kind of political sea change where diversity is, is really changing the dynamics of this district. And so Miller, um, who is white, um, has sat in this seat and seemed, what he kind of seemed to be trying to say is that, you know, kind of accuse his opponents of playing identity politics, saying that because this district is growing more diverse, that there shouldn't be a, a white guy in it. Um, he obviously said that in a very problematic way. And um, 
had kind of a stunningly swift downfall after it. So within 24 hours after that, uh, Governor Abbott rescinded his endorsement of Miller. Um, local party officials came out condemning the remarks. And uh, Miller, uh, yesterday evening, uh, afternoon, uh, announced he was not running for re-election. So it is, I would say, unusual to see Republican elected officials bowing out of contention this fast over something like this. I mean, we have a long legacy of state officials saying or doing dumb things. I'll let Alex talk about some of those <laughs> later. But I mean, why do you think he had to act this fast? You know, we've seen people fall from grace Lately, quite a few people, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the most notable being the House Speaker, Dennis Bonin, who's not seeking re-election. And we saw him. Which took months. Yeah. And, the, you know, obviously a different situation. He's He was not accused of racism, although he did say some homophobic things on tape. Um, and it took him a long time to kind of get to the point from this guy might be in trouble. This guy says some things he shouldn't have to, to this guy's not running for re-election. This was instantaneous, practically. Yeah, it was really. like almost in the next breath. Yeah. You know, there, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is a very obvious one, which is that we're in the middle of the filing period right now. Filing ends Monday. So he didn't have a lot of time to bow out before, you know, basically his name would be on the ballot um, and all this. You know, the other thing is I think you can look at this situation and see kind of the changing political dynamics, not just in Fort Bend County, but in the state. Um, it's no secret that Republicans and Democrats are talking about whether it's possible for Democrats to take control of the Texas House in 2020. Uh, Rick Miller's seat is a swing seat. Uh, he won re-election by less than 5% in 2018. Beto O'Rourke actually beat Ted Cruz in the district. And, and so I, I think it's safe to say that the powers that be in the Republican Party saw this and panicked a little bit and said, we need to get control of this or else we might be in really, really serious danger of losing this seat. And not only losing this seat, but this is a seat we need to keep as we're trying to keep the control of the House altogether. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it goes beyond even this seat to the conversation around how Republicans, you know, draw new blood into their party and specifically like how they speak to and speak about people of color. Um, I mean, there have been so many sort of conversations, so many roundtables about this lately. It seemed to me like they had to act fast in order to say like this kind of rhetoric is absolutely unacceptable in, in a big tent party. But but I agree with you, like this the instantaneous nature of it when there are other people who've said other things, you know. I mean, Sid Miller is just one example. We have a statewide elected official who says all kinds of outrageous things and nobody bats an eye. And then, you know, Rick Miller, who has a pretty long legacy in the House, says one really idiotic thing and his career is over. There um Republican I mean sorry, Democrats need nine seats to gain control of the house. They need to flip nine seats. Uh, does anyone want to guess how many seats are controlled by Republicans that Beto O'Rourke won in their district? <laughs> Matthew did his homework last night. What is, <laughs> I want to know. Nine. 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 Exactly nine. And most, if not all, most of those seats are suburban seats, seats where uh, basically the Republican, you know, that... Uh, basically they're suburbs where things are getting a lot more diverse and they're um, the traditional like Republican electorate is changed or the, 
the electorate that used to be Republican is changing, and that's causing these seats to become more competitive. And you know, in some ways, this seat is a very good example about what's going on across the state. And it shows you, the I think, the concern that they had in this seat, aside from just there were offensive things that were said and they needed to take action on that. I think it's a sign of how seriously Republicans are taking this. You can't slip up this cycle. They need to be kind of performing at their best. Mm -hmm. Emma, this, go ahead. Especially in this district, I, I was just looking back at some of the Democratic efforts um, to win this seat in 2018. You had campaign volunteers for Sri Kulkarni calling voters and, you know, speaking to them in Vietnamese and in Hindi and Urdu. And when you look at kind of the stark contrast at Democrats making a real effort to reach out to sort of the diverse communities in that district, you can see why as a Republican, you don't want to be running a candidate who's seeming to kind of dismiss those voters. Mm -hmm. Right. Alex, you said you, before the trip guest that you did your like homework of like, you know, <laughs> racist things elected officials have said over time. What did you, what did your research pull up? Oh, well, I was just, you know, going back to the Dennis Bonin profile. I think uh, a few other political reporters and myself wrote back in January of this year. It feels um, like so long ago. Yeah, um, back when he announced that he had the votes to be the House Speaker. Um, and we recounted some of the comments that he had made just throughout his very long tenure in the House. Um, he had used the phrase kunas back in like a 2014 committee hearing. I think Matthew and I were going back and forth on, you know, how offensive that term is and all that. Um, I, 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 and I, I, I mean, <laughs> that sounds really bad. I'll let Matthew, you know. I, I, I do not disagree that it's an offensive phrase. Liz. Bonin did apologize for he, it. So I think yeah, he acknowledged yeah. that there was a, you and know. He a was using it to describe people to uh, from Louisiana, which... Um, <laughs> Who were like coming uh, to Texas some, after Katrina. Some people use that term to describe people of all races from mm -hmm. Louisiana, not mm -hmm. to argue that it's less problematic in any way because mm -hmm. of that. Still, <laughs> so not a good choice of words. Yeah. And then I think in 2014 on, or in 2009, maybe on the house floor, he made a comment about, you know, Hispanic women typically not being um, encouraged to leave the home after high school. I would have to go back and look at his exact remarks, but it was just so, you know, as you've mentioned before, Sid Miller, Dennis Bonin, so many, you know, powerful Republicans have, you know, put their foot in their mouth over and over again, and no one seems to say anything. But with uh, Rick Miller, it was just an immediate downfall. And I kind of have to wonder how much of a sway Greg Abbott has in all this. You know, if Greg Abbott hadn't pulled his endorsement, would Rick Miller um, still be running for re-election today? Right. I mean, the, the tricky thing about this, I wonder if they just had to act faster than they normally would have because of the timing. Because if if he'd gotten through the primary or gotten close to the primary and then won, and then the Democrats used this against him, you know, it's like basically handing the election to the Democrats. If you pull the trigger really fast and don't wait to see how he rides out the storm, then you have time for another candidate to be running ahead of, you know, the March primary. Yeah, you know, and the we always have to kind of remind ourselves that um, primaries, uh, state house seats are low information races for most voters, mm -hmm. and there are, would probably be a lot of people going to the Republican, you know, primary, not knowing anything about this, and maybe having just seen the name Rick Miller on some yard signs over the past, you know, few election cycles, and and voting for him, and and so you know, I think there was a real threat that if he um, if he stayed in the race that he would, you know, win the nomination mm -hmm. and, and that would have presented a, a huge problem in the, in the general. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I want to um, jump to somebody else who frequently puts his foot in his mouth, and that's the president of the United States. Uh, Alex, uh, Trump was in Austin last week uh, doing what and with whom? <laughs> he was touring an Apple uh, manufacturing plant with you know, a lot of top White House officials. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. I know uh, Ivanka, Ivanka and uh, Jared Kushner were with him, um, and Tim Cook was here as well. Um, but, you know, it was actually a pretty tame visit as far as, you know, presidential visits to Texas have gone. I think, you know, the instance of him putting his foot in his mouth is when he made the comment that he opened a manufacturing plant here in Austin when that plant has been open since, I believe, before Trump was, was even, even elected, elected yeah. right? Yeah. Although yeah. he did, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is kind of not disputed that he did some work to keep a certain computer being to be manufactured there. There, right. there was a threat of it going overseas that, that he kind of stepped in. Mm -hmm. Did So did he make any waves on this trip? Or this was this was low-key before he went overseas to make waves? It was pretty low-key. Mm -hmm. um, it was a, he, you know, touched down in Austin. I think he was greeted by Dan Patrick and one other elected official. Ken Paxton. Ken Paxton, oh. yeah. Why, came, why was Ken Paxton the choice? I think Greg Abbott was out of town from what I remember. Hmm. He's oh. often with Trump on visits to Texas. Mm -hmm. I think they're kind of closely aligned. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, but it was it was pretty tame as far as I can remember. He, get, he didn't speak to the press when he landed um, and was back in D.C. later that afternoon. Hmm. Quick visit with Tim Cook <laughs> and all the <laughs> Apple folks. What do we make of the fact that he's been coming to Texas a lot? Do, should we read into that? You think? Well, you're reading into everything yeah. right now. <laughs> you're reading into the state's political climate a lot. I mean, you know, maybe he... I, I'm sure there is an initiative, an effort for him to be here sort of riling up the base. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one thing is that he definitely likes to go places that he, he views as friendly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think some people, Democrats in particular, have made the argument that he's coming here because he's worried about holding Texas in 2020. Uh, we can't really read into his mind, but, you know, he does go to Mississippi and various other places that we know are not going to flip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right, well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. Citify, monitoring cities 24-7. Your keywords trigger email alerts, and our database permanently maintains city documents, even after cities delete them. More at citify.app. And Fort Worth-based BNSF Railway employs more than 9,400 people in Texas with an annual payroll exceeding $1 billion. Okay, Emma, uh, next topic. Tell us about a letter penned by Governor Greg Abbott that you seem to have gotten your hands on last week that made some pretty big waves for state agencies. Yeah, so in early October, Greg Abbott himself, he signed the letter, wrote to state agency heads and gave them sort of a litany of tasks, asked them to overtake, undertake kind of a massive overhaul of state licensing and regulations rules. So these are kind of the standard um, tests you have to pass, you know, training hours you have to complete, fees you have to pay before you can be licensed in hundreds of occupations in Texas. You know, this is everything from being a physician to being a massage therapist. And basically- And an eyebrow threader. Don't forget the eyebrow <laughs> threaders. <laughs> a popular example. Yes. Um, and Abbott was doing, you know, what a lot of conservatives would praise him for, which is kind of saying, can we cut red tape here? Can we try to roll back some restrictions? Can we try to lower these fees? And interestingly, can we try to um, lower the bar to professional licensing and to employment for folks with criminal records in certain cases? Um, so we, we published the story. We got our, our hands on the letter in late November, and the deadline was earlier this week, December 1st, for all these state agencies to sort of report back to him what they plan to do. 
Interesting. All right. So how much money do these fees generate for the state uh, and for individual agencies? I mean, like, can agencies actually function or do their jobs if they don't have these fees? It's a lot. It's a lot of money. I think the Texas bar itself generates like $19 million a year just based on um, fees for taking certain licensing exams. And um, some of that money gets fed back into the agencies themselves just for overhead and operations. And some of it feeds into the state's general revenue fund where it can be allocated to other places. So I think there is a question of um, could the state budget take a hit from these questions, but that's sort of pending still. I think he's asking agencies to look at that and just make sure that they're not charging way more relative to what other states charge for the same types of services. And he wanted them to be something like 75% or less of the national of the average. National right? average yeah. yeah. This story, uh, caused a lot of uh, swooning among conservatives uh, <laughs> on, on Twitter in particular. You know, the idea, there's a, sec a certain wonky segment of conservative, especially legal world, that mm -hmm. uh, really dislikes this occupational licensing and feeling like you're having to pay the state, you know, in order to make a living. Um, you know, I, back in my previous world, life as a higher education reporter, I spent some time talking to people at... Uh, uh, barbering schools and you'd see a lot of people who you know were taking out federal student loans to to take courses that were required in order to get their licenses to cut hair and most of them had already kind of learned how to cut hair like in their kitchen for friends and stuff and were basically just going through the motions mm -hmm. to get these however many hours and you right. know, I think there's a strong feeling among some people that these these re requirements are super arduous. Absolutely. And, and so I think one of the bigger surprises for me was not that Abbott would direct agencies to do this. It seems, you know, very much in line with his conservative governing philosophy and with a lot of his conservative allies. But one thing I thought was interesting was one that his office hadn't advised this. They didn't kind of advertise that they were doing this. Once my story published and a few other outlets published similar stories, they did share those stories. You know, they're clearly proud of this effort. Um, but they didn't advise it at the time. So, and so this happened in October, early October. October eighth, he sent the letter. And so you, f someone, you got the letter. You, he did not like broadcast that he was doing this at yes, all. Yes, it was. It was never advertised to that's, the press. That's particularly interesting. Uh, that is interesting because I, I do think this is the kind of story that could potentially go either way. <laughs> you know, you could have someone come forward who was like badly injured or something by you know somebody who was under licensed or thought they were under licensed, or you could have state agencies like potentially freak out if they think they're about to lose a lot of money. But I think he sort of rode this out and waited to see. And it turns out that was the best strategy because this is a story that ended up getting him a lot of positive press. But yeah. The, one element of the story I also really thought was interesting was this part around sort of convicted, um, you know, f uh, felons or inmates to, to basically to help people with criminal convictions find employment. I this is this interesting push of, behind sort of like the the bipartisan push in Texas around criminal justice reform. But he brought that up specifically, didn't? or it was brought up specifically, wasn't it? Yeah, it was one of the three charges in his letter. And, you know, we should know it followed on a few bills from this past session that kind of directed agencies to do the same thing to see where, if appropriate, they could lower these bars um, for people with criminal records, in some cases, to get these professional licenses. And I think you're, you're right to raise it. It's kind of an interesting point of the conservative shift on criminal justice as recently as I think it was 2013, Abbott as attorney general uh, defended a state law that imposed blanket hiring bans on felons for certain agencies. Hmm. So even just over a period of six years, that, that effort seems to have changed. Mm -hmm. So is, is the goal here at the end of the day, you know, conservative sort of red meat issue, or is this to lure more employees to Texas or does it, it's, 
to make it easier for capitalism to work here? I mean, what is, at the end of the day, what's behind this? I think Abbott would say we want to cut red tape so that people in Texas can get jobs that they want and, you know, contribute to our economy and not be limited by these um, what in some cases he and others would say are unnecessary restrictions. Mm -hmm. I also think it kind of tells us that he is a governor who's interested in getting really deep into the weeds of these issues. It's not the first time we've seen him issue directives to state agencies um, asking them to take you know, these kind of arduous and time intensive processes that can slow down the other work they're doing and also puts a lot of work um, on the burden of his own office to accomplish these tasks that he clearly sees as priorities. Is this, does he need legislative approval on this? I mean, if this has budget implications, you know, are agencies responsible for making up the difference? It doesn't seem like he needs legislative approval. At least some of the directives that are contained in the letter kind of follow on bills that were passed this session. You know, he writes, in accordance with Senate bill, whatever, please ensure that you're doing this. It seems like in, in some of those cases, he's just kind of adding the weight of his office to, mm -hmm. to those um, directives. Interesting. Uh, all right, Alex, let's get back to the presidential action in Texas, starting with the late arrival to the campaign, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Uh, what is he up to in Texas? Spending a lot of his money here. Um, with uh, Within the first week of entering the race, he spent $3 million on the airwaves here in Texas. Um, he was in various markets. Dallas, Houston, Austin were the top three, but he was also down in the Valley. He was in El Paso. Um, and he's basically, you know, so far showed no signs of slowing down as far as uh, spending goes here in Texas. We know how expensive it is, obviously, to be mm -hmm. on the airwaves in Texas. It, I think this was part of a $35 million uh, national spend on TV advertising. I saw a lot of it over the Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, me <laughs> on, as well. <laughs> on all channels. Um, so is he the first candidate to spend money on TV in Texas? Yes, the first candidate to go up um, and broadcast in Texas here. Um, Tom Steyer hasn't even... Uh, you know, spent nationally in the mm -hmm. state. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how a lot of the lower tier candidates um, keep up with that, just because mm -hmm. Texas is such an expensive media market. Um, even candidates like Warren um, and Biden have a pretty extensive, you know, presence here in Texas. It'll be interesting to see if and when they go up on the Texas airwaves and if they can afford to spend the type of money that Bloomberg is spending here. And so he's spending this type of money here now because he's avoiding other earlier states. I mean, what's the strategy for him? What's the play? Um, so because he entered the race so late, he's made very clear that he does not plan to campaign as actively in the four early states. So Iowa, Nevada, South Carolina and New Hampshire as um, the other candidates who entered the race, you know, months ago. Um, he's long said that his focus is on the Super Tuesday states, which includes Texas. Um, so Texas was one of the big markets that he spent a lot of money in, um, but Texas was also one of 32 states that he um, went up on the TV airwaves in. I would wonder, I wonder if anybody knows this here, we'll see. Uh, has there been ever a presidential candidate or presidential nominee who basically sat out the early states? Sounds like a Ross question. I know. This is definitely a Ross Ramsey question or Bobby Blanchard if you're Googling it to find out. I'd be really curious if that works, if that strategy is ever effective. I One, one that comes, you know, I, I want to say it, it wouldn't have been, uh, maybe it was after 
Bush was up, but I remember Fred Thompson, uh, the guy from Law and Order, you might remember, who had also <laughs> been a politician in Tennessee, right? Who who kind of came late in. There were I've I've seen some cases where people, you know, not unlike this situation where candidates um, kind of saw the early entries and were like, maybe there's a space here, mm-hmm. um, and then tried to jump in. The, I mean, the big challenge is just that. There's, you know, you can talk about how expensive it is to to run in Texas, but you get a ton of free airtime winning the Iowa caucus mm-hmm. or the New Hampshire, you know, or um, any of these other early states, and and that that's worth a lot too. You know, yeah. one of the the challenges here though with Texas is that there will be people voting in Texas before South Carolina is decided. You know, we have the. The, the early voting period beforehand. And so there's, you know, one of the ideas here, especially if you don't have a lot of money, you can go compete in Iowa. It doesn't cost that money to run ads, but then you have all this momentum and people are donating to you and you can turn around and run in Super Tuesday. But there's such a little time there right. that people might not have that enough time to raise that money and then reserve that ad time, which might already be taken up by other people. It, Texas is a really interesting challenge for the campaigns this mm-hmm. year. Yeah, but if you're Bloomberg, you can just throw endless amounts of cash yeah, at it anyway. It's, it's a, and that's something he can exploit, him yeah. and Steyer and, and maybe a few of the other big names. Right. Too. Meanwhile, uh, the lone Texan left in the race, Julian Castro, seemed a little bit uh, territorial about Bloomberg spending all this cash here. What did he say? Um, a lot of comments about trying to buy the White House um, from Castro, but he certainly wasn't the only Democrat. Um, Warren and Sanders um quickly jumped on that boat too. Um, I think there was a lot of frustration just, you know, because the field seemed sort of, you know, maybe not settled, but I mean, we already have so many candidates in the race and then we have just one other guy jumping in. And then there's the whole question of, you know, you know, does a white guy really need to be the face of the democratic party? I've seen way too many think pieces on that. Um, After Kamala Harris dropped her bid yesterday and we're looking at the December debate stage. So, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of frustration with that. Yeah. Well, uh, we got I got an answer to our question. Uh, Jenny Ajluni, our development associate who's listening to the <laughs> uh, Tribcast right now, said Rudy Giuliani skipped the, that, primary, that the early primary states. That didn't there work you out go. very well. Ask <laughs> and he shall receive. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Pete Buttigieg has a really interesting Texas connection that I did not know about of uh, his own, uh, a relationship with a high-profile Austinite. What is the deal? Yes, so Steve Adler, um, Austin Mayor, and Pete Buttigieg are very good friends. Um, They met in 2015 at this, like, U.S. Mayor's Conference, which sounds so nerdy but also adorable. (laughs) Um, And I guess Adler was in his first term as mayor, and all his predecessors were like, you know, you should use this conference to find a mentor. And he found Pete. Pete was only, like, 34 at the time. Adler, I think, as we note in our story, is two, 24 years old or 26 years older than Buttigieg. And he just saw this younger mayor and was like, oh, my God, this guy is so smart. I need to talk to him. I need him be to my be friend. my mentor. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and so over the years, they've, you know, Adler went to... Uh, Sorry. <laughs> All's well that ends well. <laughs> I'm really excited about your story, Alex. <laughs> but uh, over the years, Adler and his wife, Diane, went to Buttigieg's uh, wedding, to his husband, Chastin. Um, whenever Buttigieg comes to Austin, apparently he spends the night at Adler's place. You know, Not that he's strapped for cash, but right. I guess it's good not to spend those Austin fees on hotels or whatever. Um, 
and yeah, Adler's basically been just like his biggest cheerleader in Texas, which is super interesting considering a lot of other Texas elected officials have gone to Biden or Warren or, you know, O'Rourke slash Castro. And I noticed that there was a mention of Austin's endless homelessness saga in this story. Mm-hmm. Is there, is, does that factor into this at all? Um, I don't think so. I think Adler knew something had to be done on homelessness in his own words. And he, you know, just wanted someone to talk to and bounce ideas off of. And I guess Buttigieg was that person. I was told over and over and over again that Buttigieg did not come up with the policy that the Austin City Council <laughs> ended up uh, ended up adopting. Doth um, protest too much. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but I think Buttigieg was definitely a sounding board. Um, what I think is interesting is that Buttigieg has, you know, sort of positioned himself as a more moderate Democrat. Um, and I think uh, Adler is, you know, usually pretty measured and moderate as well. Um, but with this policy, he's dr- received a lot of backlash from Texas Republicans. And it'll be interesting if Buttigieg makes it to Texas, um, if he can sway Republicans that his best friend is kind of turning off. Right. All right, y'all. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Raise Your Hand Texas, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, Citify, and BNSF, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Matthew, Emma, Alex, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it.